0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. I got a great guest today, former teammate of mine, left-handed starter, starting pitcher, really fantastic player. We're excited to talk about pitching with him today. A uh, guy from currently living in Philadelphia, left-hander Matt Zielinski. Matt, how you doing, man?
1: Hey Dan, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man, it's good to finally get you on here and and chat pitching a little bit. So obviously you've had a, a great career. I'm going to rattle off some of your numbers here for a second. So you know we first played together back in 2012, and since then. Your numbers, career, 3.29 ERA, 48-33 and win-loss record, 735 innings pitched. And the big number for me that really jumps out is 2.3 walks per nine innings over such a massive amount of innings. So that's only 186 walks. And, uh, you know, just for me, knowing you for so long, that was always, you know, one of your biggest things. So, you know, as you and I grew kind of up together in pro baseball, very, very different pitchers, you and I, right? Obviously you from Philly with your, your massive beard and, and me from a <laughs> small town in Maryland with no appreciable beard. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's one of the cool things about pro baseball is that you, you get to meet a lot of different guys. And, and Matt was, you know, someone despite being younger than me and having a, a much better, you know, much better beard than I, just a really solid pitcher. So Matt, number one, how is Philadelphia treating you?
1: Uh, you know, it's been great to be home. I haven't been back. Uh, I grew up in the Bucks County of suburb of Philadelphia. And since, uh, going to college, I went to the university of Richmond since then, I r- really haven't been back in the area besides uh, a few off seasons here and there. And then, um, you know, I haven't had much of an off season in the past couple of years. So, uh, it's good to be back. I'm going to assimilate it to, uh, you know, being in the Northeast in the summer and I guess the springtime now, but, uh, it's been good. There's a lot of things going on in Philadelphia. It's re- really, uh, it's really booming city right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, kind of make me jealous on a bunch of different fronts cuz A, I loved living in Philly. You know, I obviously lived in the hipster area of Fishtown my last season with the River Sharks, but B, you got to play in some pretty cool places, uh, you know, as you really started to take take hold of your career and develop into a, you know, an all-star starting pitcher. So, tell me a little bit about your travels in foreign baseball cuz obviously you played winter ball a bunch and last summer you played over in Italy so tell me a little about where you played and and all that stuff
1: yeah I would say that I definitely got on track uh for the foreign leagues when I first entered into the Atlantic League in 2014 I ended up having a really good first half of the season I was an all-star and uh just so happened that the Is very well scouted by the winter leagues. And I was seen by a Dominican team, was up in Somerset scouting us for winter ball. And uh, I actually got an offer pretty much right on the spot um, to come play winter ball in Dominican Republic. And, uh, you know, I was really excited by that. I had always heard that Dominican Republic is like regarded as the best winter league, it's very high talent, a lot of big leaguers, a lot of prospects. I immediately took the opportunity and uh, I kind of just been the door for me to, for future opportunities, and uh you know so I played in Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico, and Puerto Rico for the winter, and then I did uh last regular season play in Italy,
0: obviously, I always rooted for you in your career, and I know you rooted for me, and you know we were buddies from our Evansville days, but man, a lot of jealousy from this side of the table. I would have loved to play some one of those foreign leagues you guys talk about I'm just you know the legend of playing in thirty in front of thirty thousand fans and everyone's just hanging on your every pitch and it just sounds like such a wild time playing in the farm league so i want to get back to you know that experience but let's let's take a step back and talk about a how you got into pro baseball so obviously you were a richmond spider you know small division one school which god that campus was gorgeous right
1: oh yeah that's the what's the one thing everybody says this is beautiful campus small school but uh it's a beautiful lake in the middle and a lot of uh brick architecture all over, um, including the stadiums on this on campus are all outlined in brick. So uh it's a really nice place.
0: Yeah, and so obviously we've a lot of kids that listen to this, a lot of aspiring ball players. So first thing, tell me a little bit about where you went to high school and you know, like how good were you in high school? And then how did you find your way to a, you know, a nice division one and start your career there?
1: Uh, Well, I went to LaSalle High School. It's uh, right outside Philadelphia. It's in the Philadelphia Catholic League. Um, I happened to have a pretty solid high school career. I uh, was a two-time Philadelphia Pitcher of the Year, Player of the Year. Uh, A couple of the newspapers uh, named me Player of the Year in Philadelphia. Um, So I had pretty solid accolades coming through high school. And then going into the recruiting process, I was – Fairly recruited by a lot of uh, high academic schools. Uh, I had offers from quite a few of the Ivy Leagues. Also had a lot of scholarship offers from a lot of the not as highly academic schools, but uh, better baseball schools. And uh, I tried to find the balance for me between strong academics and a strong baseball tradition. And uh, I landed on Richmond as my choice.
0: So what were Uh, some of those other schools? Because I'm I'm interested personally, just like who else was, was blowing up your phone?
1: Uh, I would say that my last last schools that I was siding with was Villanova, Richmond and Penn. Uh, My first offer was actually from Columbia. And then as the search went on, I had some offers from University of, let's see, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Um, I had an offer from University of Virginia, but it was a smaller percentage scholarship. And the thing that kind of I didn't want to happen and what was really played into my decision was I didn't want to go to a huge school that recruited tons of players and I didn't want to be a guy that was going to be second tier, maybe fighting for uh, some playing time. So I went to a school that I knew that I would have an opportunity because frankly, Richmond didn't have any left-handed pitchers. Um, And that's what one thing that helped me decide that, you know what, I'm going to have an opportunity, whether it's to be a starter or a reliever to get innings and prove myself. Whereas I, what I found or what I was told, now at the time I didn't know how good I was going into college because you play high school baseball and you know, you're know only as good as what's the high school competition you're playing against. So going into college I didn't really know and I don't think anybody really knows how good you are until you get there and play against a higher competition. And that's one of the things maybe looking back on, maybe I would have been okay going to a higher level baseball school like University of Virginia. And done well, but you know that's all I saw in the past. Now, but
0: well, yeah, I mean it's a scary proposition. Like, and I and I think I told the story in one of my previous podcasts. But I grew up with a kid named Mike, and he and I were good friends up until eighth grade. And his family moved away; he moved down to North Carolina. And after he moved, he grew up into a into a stud, and he was like six five. I think he was eighty eight to ninety. He was like North Carolina player of the year a couple years in a row. And from what I heard, he went to UNC, pitched for the Tar Heels. And he just couldn't see the field. Now, I mean, there could be more of the story that I don't know, but you know, it seemed like he was a guy who he went too big, and they kept piling on. You know, kids who were going to get drafted in the top ten rounds, and they just kept throwing those kids in front of him. And I think that happens for a lot of players who are, you know, these big schools can get some of the best talent, and kids want to go there. You know, they want to wear that awesome uniform and have that experience, but not all those kids can see the field. So it sounds like you had a pretty mature approach to your recruiting process. I'm not sure most kids would describe, you know, their experience the way you, it seems like you had a lot of either good advisors or I guess you're kind of smart, huh? I'm not really sure. (laughs) Well,
1: no, I did have a lot of impression I ever got from me, but (laughs) just kidding. Uh, Yeah. I had a a lot of great advisors along the way that were involved in baseball at the higher levels or had been there. And I kind of sought out a lot of their opinions of what I should do. Um, As well as, you know, kind of thinking about me as a person where I, I was a, No, I was fairly, I got good grades in high school and uh, I wanted to continue um, being challenged academically and, you know, with the, you know, chance that professional baseball wasn't going to be realistic. I didn't know at that point. Um, Although, I mean, I, Richmond ended up being a great decision for me because my freshman year, I got every opportunity and more. I became the Friday night starter my freshman year due to a lot of injuries on our staff. I ended up being the Atlantic 10 Rookie of the Year that year, and I was a Louisville Slugger Freshman All-American, and it pushed me to uh, have a, uh, a spot in the Cape Cod League uh, after my sophomore season with the Harvest Mariners, who we actually ended up winning the championship. So uh, it put me on a great track for my baseball career, and uh, what you know what kind of happened was along the way, I suffered a couple injuries that kind of you know didn't you know kind of hurt me. It didn't keep me out of school or my playing years until my senior year when I did have uh, surgery, which, you know, prevented me from even really playing my senior season.
0: Hmm. I actually didn't know that. And maybe I did, but I forgot. But what was your injury with your shoulder? Was your shoulder, right?
1: No, it was my elbow. I had bone spurs. I, oh, I made a right. couple of starts my senior year. Uh, it took a while to figure out what was wrong. I was told by two do- doctors that I needed Tommy John surgery. Uh, I finally got a third opinion from Dr. Morgan in Delaware, who's a highly regarded. I think you know him very well as well. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked at my MRI and uh, he kind of laughed. And uh, if anybody is know Dr. Morgan, he's has a very dry sense of humor. He kind of laughed at my MRI and said, huh, my dog can read this MRI. You don't need Tommy <laughs> John surgery. You only uh, have bone spurs. I'll clean you up. You'll be ready to go in three months. Here, here's my assistant. Schedule your surgery. So He's very blunt, but uh, that changed my outlook on my career, uh, definitely not knowing that it wasn't going to be a real year. It might have been a couple months until i would be back playing.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you – yeah, I, I know Dr. Morgan all too well. He was terrifying. <laughs> you know, like me and my, my best friend at the time in college, we both ended up getting Tommy John surgery within three months of each other, and I went to Morgan because I thought he was the best, and that was all I cared about. But he went to see Morgan, and he just – he was like, dude, I can't do it. Like I, I'm more of a, I want to know my doctor and I want to have a doctor with good bedside manner and I want to be able to talk to him and, and and just like more having like an emotional side of it with my, with my doc. And he's like, he, he gives me 45 seconds and I'm just not okay with that. And I, and I completely understand that. I remember hearing Dr. James Andrews speak and he talked about how patient care is, is more than just doing the surgery and, and reading off the charts. It's, it's caring for the person as a whole. And I think that was, that was very profound. And yeah, I mean, he was very short, very to the point all my, I think every time I went to see him, it was 45 minutes waiting in the doctor's office and 45 seconds in his office. It's like, in yeah, at, le-
1: at least a 45 minute wait. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah. I mean,
1: I was with you though. And I know I knew that he was highly regarded and, you know, he had a lot of high talented player, uh, professional athletes that he was operating on. And I was fine with that. You know, if that's the way he was going to do it, I. I yeah. respected that and I, I trusted that he was the guy.
0: Yeah, because on one hand, it scares you. But on the other hand, you know, like when I was coming out of surgery, you know, he he did my elbow and I was getting wheeled out. And he saw me. And he's like, hey, hey, Dan, like went great. And it's as good as the day as the day you uh, are the day you're born. And I look at my elbow and I'm just like just coming back. And I'm like, wait, I don't have a brace. <laughs> like, wait, can I how do I sleep on this? Am I am I OK? And he's like, oh, no, you're fine. I'm like, okay. And on one hand, that's scary because you want guidelines. But on the other hand, you're like, if he's that flippant about it, if he's that blase about, you know, what I can, what I can and can't do, that kind of inspires you that you're like, man, I guess I'm good then. You know, if he doesn't, if he's yeah, not worrying about sure. it, then maybe I shouldn't worry about it. You know, that's also a uh, kind of a slippery slope too. Then you go home and start playing mm-hmm. wiffle ball with your, you know, your repaired elbow or something you're back in the operating <laughs> table. I don't know, but... Swinging um, a golf club. Two months, two two weeks later. Yeah. Well, my big thing is once I realized I had to get surgery that that summer, I uh, we had like a big party in our house in college, and we had like this huge tub of diet cokes, and I, I'm sure everyone at home listening is like, "Oh, I'm sure there were beers." You're just lying, but no, they were they were like diet cokes. That's why we had like 90 of them left because who wants to drink diet coke? But <laughs> I remember I was just pissed off, and I was like, "Well." I've got three three weeks until surgery, so I guess I'm going to do everything that I couldn't do when I was trying to keep myself healthy. So I like took all those diet cokes, and I just winged them sidearm into this concrete (laughs) retaining wall. I was just throwing them as hard as I could in this wall and just watching them explode, and it was just just delightful. And then I went and like bench pressed my face off for the rest of the afternoon, just trying to get everything out of my system before surgery. All right, so then you went to Richmond. You kind of had a Mm -hmm. tough tough senior year with uh, you know, with your elbow where did you go from there? Because at that point, I mean, it seems like you and I are both in a similar position, which is what do we do now? You know, like the draft passes us by because we were injured. Where, What did you do that, do next?
1: Yeah, this, this part is kind of interesting. I, I really didn't know what to do, honestly. I, I, You know, being at kind of at the highest point where, you know, I had such success in college, I was in the Cape Cod League, you know, I was on track, to, you know, to probably be drafted or have a chance of being signed as a free agent but then that surgery happened and then I was like oh man I graduated and then I was just in limbo nobody wanted to sign me a guy that just had surgery so uh what I did actually is I uh I had a red shirt for my senior year and uh I went to Westchester University in Phil, and outside of Philadelphia a state school a division two state school who had a really good reputation They actually won the d2 world series I think one or two years before I ended up going there. I ended up going just for the spring semester. I took three master's classes and uh, I was able to play on the team. However, I did not perform the way up to my my ability or what Matt Zielinski used to have been. So it was pretty frustrating to be now at at a lower level playing and not being successful. So it was very frustrating. However, I was still being some contacted by some independent teams in the Frontier League throughout that season, and that still gave me hope that uh you know, my chances of playing professional baseball were still still real and that it could still happen.
0: So then what was the link? So then how did you get from you know getting calls and maybe getting a chance to actually getting your contract faxed to you and you being on your way to what would later be Evansville, Indiana? Uh
1: yeah, so um after the college season ended, I was sitting. I didn't have anything going for me. Um, I went, I on my own dime, I went out to Gateway Grizzlies and threw a bullpen for them. Um, you know, they didn't sign me. I did the same thing for the Windy City Thunderbolts. They, I, I went and threw a bullpen for them. They also didn't sign me. Uh, and then I got home and I was frustrated. And I said, you know what? I'm probably done, you know, or if another team calls and they're interested, I'm not going to go unless they give me a contract. I can't be, you know, flying out to these places with the hope of signing them telling me no, Uh, just wasn't financially feasible anymore. And it was just frustrating. So finally, I was pitching in a summer in a men's summer league in Philadelphia, and there was a guy at the game who had some baseball background and had played a couple of years in the Tigers system. Um, he was older and I happened to be pitching that day and he saw me, uh, throw. And he said to me, Hey, do you, do you have any interest of in playing, you know, independent ball? And I said, yeah, I've been trying nobody. You know, I went through for two teams, you know, they liked me, but they didn't want to sign me. And uh, they said they didn't need me at the time. Um, and then he said, well, you know, I have a, I actually have a, a manager that I'm friends with that I can give a call to. And that happened to be Andy, uh, Andy McCauley. And, um, So I didn't speak with Andy. I spoke with the pitching coach who actually ended up at at Richmond for one year as a player before he transferred to another school. So we had that commonality and uh, they wanted me to come out and throw for them as a bullpen as well. And I I pretty much told them, hey, listen, I can't do that. Either you give me a chance and give me a contract and I'll sign or, you know, I really just can't do it and I'm just going to I'm just going to wait till next season or I'm just going to find something else to do. So two days later, they ended up faxing me the the contract, and I was driving 13 hours to Evansville the next day.
0: Yeah, and that sounds like Andy. I mean, because you know, obviously you and I both played for him, and one of the things he told me was, you know, Blue, I like giving guys a chance, and not just to drive them down here for bullpen, but if someone recommends a guy to me and they say, that, hey, he's a good kid and he deserves a chance, I'm gonna give him, you know. A week, you know, I'm going to give him a, a legitimate shot, pitch a couple of times, and see how it goes. And that was something I always respected about him. So, you know, Andy McCauley was is still one of my my mentors, and you know, he helped me get back into baseball. And so, you know, everything you're saying obviously is is right in tune with his philosophy about helping young guys get started. You know, guys who want that chance and who have you know good character, someone to vouch for him. You know, he would give those guys a shot. So you get down to Evansville, and you know, talk about the transition. So you're suddenly learning all these new things about pro baseball, There's clubhouse dues, all this new stuff. It's very foreign. Like, how do you, how do you adjust?
1: <laughs> one of the, one of the first, I actually had a teammate, uh, that from Richmond who was already on Evansville when I got there, a guy named Matt Trent. Um,
0: Oh uh, yeah. I remember Trent. And like he yeah, was a character. he,
1: he was, he was, he actually was signed by Evansville prior to me. And, uh, In the process of me getting out there he was kind of uh he did a good job of telling me kind of things that i needed to know before i got there just you know stupid things that you don't know coming from college into pro ball like you don't call the coach coach you know you call him by his name or you call him skip skip or you know he's the manager he's not coach andy he's not coach mccauley his name's andy you know or he's skip um, so that was like one of the things I was told, I was told to bring a lot of polo shirts as well. Cause I guess we were traveling in polo shirts. Um, but I, I remember my first, I showed up, I think it was game, almost game time when I showed up, uh, and I, I got changed. I, I don't even know if I had a Jersey, honestly, but I was in the dugout. Um, and it was my first kind of idea of what goes on in that league when I saw, you know, the guy wearing the jersey that I was wearing the next day was in the dugout. And, uh, you know, that was pretty like I understood then that there's a short leash year. And, uh, you know, and I quickly learned that. And I, I felt that immediately when I, I had my first start, um, it was pretty much the feeling was, hey, listen, this is my only chance. If I do well, I probably have another chance. If not, I'm probably leaving tomorrow and somebody else is taking my job just so happens i ended up i I think i threw about five innings or so and i beat the 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 team that was in first place so uh that bought me another start at least and i ended up finished in that season uh 2011 i guess i was there for the month of august i think i made seven starts and uh the rest was history after that
0: yeah did you know matt trent and i played together in collegiate summer ball I think yeah, he, I thought so. I think you knew I was, that, I was, yeah. I,
1: I, I'm pretty sure that you knew him, but I wasn't sure where the relationship started.
0: Yeah, it's and the baseball world is shockingly small. It's super bizarre how it just always seems to come around and go back around. But yeah, Trent and I played together in the Silver Spring-Tacoma Thunderbolts, which is in the Cal Ripken League, which is a D.C.-based uh, summer, summer collegiate league, which was pretty, pretty strong right around then. I'm not sure how, how that league is now, but yeah, Trent was a year younger than me, and... He ended up getting out there a year before me because I was hurt. and Obviously, you know, he threw well. So, you know, John Duffy got him out there, I think. And, yeah, it was weird that you and I and Trent were all in the same little clan. Like, we were our own team, kind of, where when we got sent there, it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, hey, make sure you look for this guy. And you know, he's one of our guys. He's one of our guys. It's almost like we're on this own little, this little squad. And we mm-hmm. all just kind of, like, looked out for each other a little bit and, like, almost had a friend, like you said, someone to kind of help ease the transition, which was cool. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, both of us saw over a couple of years there. So obviously I started in 2010 and then played 2011 and then 2012, you know, you and I played together in Evansville, but obviously, you know, I'm sure. saw a bunch of guys who were there for what, one night or three days, you know, they they pitch one time and they're, they pitch like crap and they're out of there. It's crazy.
1: It is sad because you could see it immediately too. Just knowing what goes on in the league and they're, they're new and you see what their performance and, you're either I always remember sitting in the stands charting and just be like, Man, this guy's someone new is gonna be here, probably already on his way. This guy's not gonna be here tomorrow. And it was, it was sad, but it was the way the game, you know, in the Frontier League independent ball is. And uh I remember one I guess the, maybe the first meeting of the year, uh I don't know which year it was, but in Evansville, Andy, uh, you know, one of the things that always resonated with me, he said is, you know, this is independent ball is baseball without the bullshit, you know. It's play to win. And and nothing else matters. The politics don't happen here like they do in the minor league baseball.
0: Yeah. And a lot of ways it's like the big leagues where obviously not the level of play of the big leagues, but you play well up there. The only thing that matters is winning, right? So there's no exactly. not getting developed. You got to go out there and do your job. If not, we have so many people calling to take your job. Like literally every day, those managers field calls from agents and players who say, Hey, I got this great kid, you know, went undrafted, played at this college, great numbers, great person, you know, take a shot. Well, they're full until you start underperforming and then they start listening and then suddenly they're not full anymore because they get rid of you. Right. They make space. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, and that was, you know, and in a lot of ways, and I'm not sure, you know, you can talk on this as well, but I think that pushed me more than anything else in my career. I felt like I got so much smarter as a baseball player in such a short time. Like, you know, we, you and I both played for like 20, 23 years, you know, I started playing when I was eight. I retired when I was 31 and I learned probably 90% of what I know about baseball. I mean, you know, on like the deeper level and just like the last handful of years, because when your job's on the line, like you internalize things better, you focus better. It's just completely different.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I some things that's really hard to explain. I think when people don't, don't really understand the the back against the wall feeling that you have pretty much every time you're playing. I mean, your job was on the line every day and it wasn't easy. It definitely wasn't. I remember talking to, I know one of our team mutual teammates about it all the time and how difficult it was to kind of internalize that feeling and not pitch like, Oh wow. Like I just gave up three runs in the first inning. I'm probably released tomorrow. And that was, that was realistic thoughts that we all had because we knew that, you know, it happened to some people and, and, you know, but if we let that take over that whole outing, yeah, that pretty much could have been. But it was, you had to do your best to say, okay, three runs in the first inning. All right, well, let's go five more innings and let's limit those runs. Give our chance, our team a chance to win. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it took a long time and uh to really be able to, to stop thinking uh, that today was my last game.
0: Yeah, and and obviously, for me, I always kind of thought of it like almost like a currency. So when you you, you throw well you like earn some money in like your career. Like it's an investment and you get to stay as long as you have some, some tokens. And then when you pitch Mm. bad, you give a couple back. And then when you're empty and you got nothing left, you're down to your last bad start. You got to get some again. That was kind of how it was. Like every time you throw well, you feel like you bought yourself at least one more outing, Right. And absolutely that was, and and at times you just feel like the safest place is on the bus where if you're (laughs) on the bus and you're going to the next place, you're not going to get released at least right now. Like you, you have time, especially when you're going on the road. Because like, they get rid of guys at the end of the road trips and before the road trips, right? So, yeah, it was it was nerve-wracking. And I don't think I started feeling comfortable until maybe, I don't know, like two years in where you have to have stats. Like if you get released after like a couple, your first couple weeks when you're a rookie, you might never play again. But once you get some deep stats under your belt, then you think, okay, now if I get released, enough people have seen me where – you know, maybe someone will pick me up. You know, I, I'm, I have some experience now and that was important too.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, I guess, I guess probably after my first full year 2012, um, uh, going in 2013, I was a little more comfortable, um, just to know that I had a little more lee- leeway because I, you know, I had shown what I can do the, for a whole season. I stayed healthy. I had ate some innings, you know, I had done well. Um, and, you know, kind of in that third, that 2013 year, you know, was kind of the more thoughts was, all right, if I throw well, like maybe I have a chance someone sign me. And then those thoughts also are kind of uh, dangerous as well.
0: Yeah. So you're, I'm looking at your stats here in 2011, you, your first season, you put up a 3.3 ERA, 43 innings, uh, 13 walks, 28 K. So solid numbers, right? That gets you a second season for sure. And then 2012. Yeah, that was a good jumping ground. Yeah, it absolutely is. Anything under four. And you're you know you're pretty safe. And if you're well under a four, obviously like you're doing a good job. You know it's hard to pitch to mm-hmm. a three five or better. And then your second year, the year we played together, you had a three nine six over 111 innings. You know and that's a that's another stellar season. You're seven and seven. And the year after that, nine and seven with a three four over 124 innings. So, you know with that three year body of work that you started yourself off with, like you proved that you're durable, you're consistent. You know your walk rates were like identical from year to year. Your strikeout rates were like identical. You know your ERA was. Pretty much the same, three, 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 nine, three, four, mm-hmm. and that's important because managers want to know that they can just run you out there, and they know what they're going to get, right? Yeah, for sure. And you know, if anything, that was that was always you. You know, as we competed against each other in the Atlantic League in two thousand fourteen and fifteen, and and well, almost sixteen, you were in Italy, but you know, everyone knew that when you pitched, they were going to get six solid innings, or you know, at least a hundred solid pitches out of you, and you're going to come out with fastball, changeup and you know a a curveball or slider when you needed to right that was pretty much you and that you'd compete you'd keep the ball on the ground you wouldn't walk guys and you you know you you're aggressive with the strike zone like that was that was pretty much you would you agree oh yeah i mean i i definitely developed and understood
1: that you know my style of pitching was i was a contact pitcher um who was going to eat innings and give the the team a chance to win so being that you know with my lifetime era you know i was probably going to go hopefully six seven innings you know give up three runs and the team should have a good chance to win um that was kind of my game, game and i uh i didn't once i was able to find that and accept that it was came well to kind of progress in that style of pitching where you know i was trying to get guys out in the first three pitches every time
0: yeah and that's an underrated quality like kids don't realize that that if they want to eat these innings that even that you know they see their major league stars punching out 10 guys a game but even then, these guys are incredibly efficient with their pitches, right? Three-pitch efficiency. I mean, do you want to kind of elaborate on on what three-pitch efficiency means to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, number one was you know, always trying to get strike one, obviously, and be aggressive. Like you said, be aggressive. That was the other thing. I mean, I wanted the pitch to contact. I wanted to be aggressive, but I also needed to be smart. I couldn't be throwing balls right down the middle. I had to know who my hitter was, know what their weaknesses was, know what my strength is. And usually in those first three pitches, what I was going to do is, I, I know, especially early on in the game, I used a lot of fastballs all the time. You know, and sometimes some games I did get burned, and you know that was to my own stupidity, where I I had, was stuck in a style of pitching where you know I thought that even though I wasn't a hard thrower, that I commanded my fastball really well, especially the inner inner part of the plate, and I, I could attack guys early in the game and then as the game went on second time through the lineup I would make adjustments uh based off what they did uh, but I would attack guys early especially on the inside inside part of the plate
0: so as you kind of explain all that all that kind of higher level thought about pitching you know like talk about some of your influence and where did you get that where did you get that pitching savvy
1: well honestly uh throwing inside was something that uh one of our pitching coach brooks really uh Really, really uh, swore by. He, uh, he he was convinced that anybody in the Frontier League could not hit an inside fastball.
0: Oh, yeah. We had that conversation it's... numerous times. He would have that conversation with me yeah. on the mound. He's like, hey, Blue. Absolutely. You, where can this kid not, not hit it? I'm like, well, he's kind of got a slow swing. He's like, yeah, let's throw like five fastballs inside on him. I'm like, all right, see you later, Brooks. He just walks down the mound. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and he—he he, that was his—he swore by that in the league, and he, he was right. I mean, most guys could not, and that was—that was, you know, one of the reasons why most of those hitters were in that league because they couldn't hit the inside fastball. You know, and, and a lot of guys still can't. I mean, it, it's not an easy thing for a hitter to hit, and once, you know, as a pitcher, you can command that inside part of the plate. I mean, it's very effective, and uh, once I was able to, you know, I guess. I was taught to throw there consistently in the Frontier League. You know, it became one of my strengths, and I was able to utilize that at a higher level after that.
0: Yeah, because especially with you as a, you know, a contact pitcher and a guy who relied on his changeup as his, you know, primary offspeed pitch, you know, explain how opening up the inner part of the plate to you and establishing it, how does that open up, you know, success away with your changeup and your fastball.
1: Yeah, so I mean getting guys to be to respect that fastball inside. Um I also uh as I went on, I believe in two thousand thirteen I started to throw it, but in two thousand fourteen it was you know, a really good pitch for me was my cutter and uh I was able to mix the cutter and four seamer inside on right hander's hands and that really um was effective and it allowed me to also uh expand the zone away with the changeup and with the two seam fastball. So they really didn't know what they were going to get. I mean, they could have got, you know, I could speed them up with a little bit of cutter inside. I was going to run up and then come back with a four seamer on the hands. And then they're you know, probably going to get blown up or a little bit behind it because it's probably a two to three mile an hour faster. Uh, And then I also have the ability to go away and something that's going to run away from the barrel as well with the change up or two seamer.
0: Yeah, and I just had this conversation with one of our high school pitchers because I watched him throw an extremely good game, but he threw in 100 pitches about 50 breaking balls, no change-ups. And he and I talked, wow. and I said, you know, you have – out I mean, he has outstanding command of his breaking ball. I mean, better than I did at any point in my career. And, you know, he's 17. But we talked about, like, how much, A, his curveball is going to improve when he pitches off his fastball, and, B, how he's going to need his change-up at higher levels and how even if his change-up – he thinks it's not the right pitch right now, but – it's going to be the right pitch when he increases the percentage of fastballs he throws, right? Absolutely. I mean,
1: the, the higher level you get, I mean, the more fastball-happy these hitters get. And the more fastball-happy they get, the better the changeup becomes. So, uh, you know, you can read spin. So breaking ball is, you know, doesn't look as much like a fastball as a changeup does. So, I mean, that's why it's so effective.
0: Yeah, and it's a weird thing. You know, I, I remember watching College World Series games last last couple of summers and just being incredibly frustrated by it. How you have they run, you know, six foot four lefties out there throwing ninety three over and over and these guys throw curveball, 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 slider, slider, slider. You know, and I I just don't I don't understand the the differences between these games. I mean, you get to pro baseball and guys they pitch with their fastball. And it almost seems paradoxical because, you know, hitters want to hit the fastball, right? But every pitcher says his best pitch is his fastball. And you have to pitch mm-hmm. them off your fastballs, so like how does it all work together? It's kind of confusing.
1: Yeah, I mean it's really odd. Obviously, they say most hitters do hunt fastballs, but they also say that a fastball is the hardest pitch to hit, most likely because it, has, it leaves the, you know, the smallest margin for error. I mean, you have to hit it just right. I mean, it's the ball that's moving the fastest. You have the least time to react. It also probably has the shortest and smallest amount of movements, but that little bit of movement is just enough, and that's all you need to miss a barrel.
0: Yeah, and it was funny, you know. Alan Nathan, he's like the world's baseball, you know, premier baseball physicist. He's you know right down the street at U of I from me, and he and I talked about how Mariano Rivera and all these guys who throw exceptional cutters, their cutters are better because they move less, right? And that's what that kind of goes ties into what you're saying about you know having the least amount of movement when the fat when when the pitch deviates off the fastball's trajectory. You know, everything wants to look like a fastball as long as possible, and so these harder breaking balls like these cutters. It's tracking down the, the fastballs track, you know. So it kind of just like if they're both on a luge, you know, the cutter's following the fastballs luge longer until it just deviates later, and then it's oh crap, it's not on my barrel like I thought it was going to be. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me then, you know, as we uh, you know we get deep into in, into pitching savvy, like you played it in Somerset. So obviously after you played for three years in the Frontier League, you got traded away, and you know mm-hmm. it was an upgrade. So you got sent. Obviously, Heavensville kind of has a pipeline to Somerset where Andy and, uh, you know, the manager of the Somerset Patriots in the Atlantic League, Brett Jody's, they're good friends, and they send players back and forth. And that was my link where I was in spring training with Somerset in 2014. And I I didn't make that team there. You know, you were there, and you kind of had to like, no, bye, blow it, no. (laughs) um, I I caught on elsewhere. But, uh, you know, so talk about that transition. So you went from facing guys who maybe had no, you know, minorly experience to facing guys who had, 10 years of big league experience and what was the you know the breaking in period for you
1: yeah i mean honestly i didn't know what to expect uh i knew that coming in the summer set, it was going to be facing guys with much much uh higher car- careers than uh, i had faced in the frontier league a lot of guys with big league experience um and that was you know a little intimidating i didn't, I didn't know what to expect i didn't know how i was going to match up and uh you know you obviously you were there in spring training as well and uh you know i felt like i was probably one of the one of the bottom three pitchers a guy fight, definitely fighting for a job, a guy that was going to get a chance, but, you know, a guy they probably weren't counting on. Um, so it was just really up to me to kind of prove myself in so, the way that I can. Um, and I, I guess I was able to do that in spring training. Uh, I ended up making the club, which was, you know, really, really big thing for my career. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started in the bullpen, which was very, very, uh, uh, wasn't familiar with. Uh, I never been in the bullpen and, and, uh, Evansville, I was a starter the whole time. So I was in the bullpen and I, I was more of a long relief guy and ended up making two appearances in long relief. And then, uh, one of our starters, uh, was struggling a bit and, uh, they decided to give me an opportunity. I ended up, I think I ended up going about in Lancaster, I think was my first start. I ended up going, I think five innings. I think I gave up one run. And, uh, you know, ever since then I stayed in the rotation. I ended up uh putting up a really solid first half i was you know selected to the all-star team that year and i was the I actually uh started the all-star game which was a big thing for my career as well down in uh was down in sugarland texas which was a really cool experience for me
0: yeah so that was your second all-star appearance right
1: no that was actually my first
0: i thought you had one in evansville okay um and didn't you have another one because i'm looking at your stats here and you had a pitch to a 286 in 2015 were you there as well
1: uh and I was not elected that in two thousand fifteen. I ended up having better numbers in fifteen, but uh I was not elected to the
0: team in uh fifteen. Man, you got you got boned.
1: Yeah, we had a real I mean we had a really uh really good starting staff that year. Uh I think we had I wanna say four four of our starters were were sub threes at that point, or it was it was impressive what was going on. So I was up some good competition on my own squad.
0: Yeah, and I think you ended up coming on really strong in the second half too. I think you were maybe a little higher, like you're maybe above the threes at mid, mid at midpoint, and then you really I think turned on the Jets in the second half of the season. And I think I remember that correctly, but I'm not sure. You had a lot of a lot of solid season, obviously 166 innings that year. I mean, how does your how did your arm recover as your innings load continued to pile up? You know, the Atlantic League playing 140 games versus the hundred hundred game schedule in the Frontier League.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a learning curve for that. Um, my arm. uh you know, I was good all the way all the way probably until August. And then August is when I would say I started to feel it. You know, in Evansville, that was the last month of the season for, you know, in the Atlantic League. That's still have two months to go um, if you're in playoffs. And uh, that's when my body definitely started to feel it. I started to, you know, try to do less as far as in the weight room and kind of just listen to my body. Maybe stick to some more mobilities, make sure I'm getting the rest that I needed. Just anything I could, honestly, to, to feel like I was ready to go. I mean, there were some weeks where I would, you know, I cut down on bullpens. I did not throw bullpens midweek. I would just throw a flat round. And I think that was probably for a whole month at one point where I, I, things were going well for me. I had a really good stretch. I think I think I had about a seven a seven start stretch where I I pitched every five days without an off day. I missed every off day. Um, so I just cut down on bullpens. I was just throwing flat rounds, just trying to give myself every opportunity for my arm to feel the best they could on start day
0: yeah and that was an incredibly it's an incredibly underrated thing that when you get to pro ball, everything you've known about your routine that you go through in college just gets completely thrown out the window i mean there's a, it's just the demands are completely different, your job's on the line every day, so the number one thing is just being fresh. you want to take your best stuff out there to the mount every day right and it's just i know for me it took me a number of years to figure out what let me to perform my best every time I took the mound. And that first season in, you know my rookie year. My velocity was down one time and then, I, you know, it was just fluctuating for the first like half of the season. And then I kind of figured out, OK, here's exactly how much I can't I can do and and take 90 to 93 out on the mound because I had to have that every time I pitched. If I want any chance of, you know, succeeding the way I, you know, with my arsenal and just hopefully getting signed. And when I made that transition to a reliever later, it was the same thing. I just like relearn all over again. Like, how do I feel after, you know, pitching two days in a row and then pitching three days in a row, which was rare, but still happened you know, in four games out of six and then it's August and you're just dragging. And, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, Cal Ripken was like the local hero because I grew up in Maryland. And I just remember, hey, I just like I wasn't a big Cal Ripken fan, like whatever. Like obviously, you know, everyone has their heroes and they identify with them with, you know, with various things. But I just didn't see the the hullabaloo over the consecutive game streak. I was like, oh, he just like played. 2000 games in a row like, who cares <laughs> but then when you finally get out there and you do it you're like good god how on earth did he do that right yeah that's definitely not an easy feat i mean you it's know, like I was,
1: I, yeah it really is i mean and that, i would like things you said there like i was a big routine guy all throughout my career i tried to go you know, be consistent but i had to learn that i had to be more flexible than i could and i really wanted to at times where i you know, I thought that if I didn't do a certain thing in between starts that I wasn't going to be prepared. Uh, and I, I had to change my mindset with that and, and finally realized that, you know what, whatever I had to do to be 100% of the best I could be on start day it was what I had to do.
0: Yeah. And sometimes that, that means doing nothing or doing very little, right? You feel kind of guilty about it because, you know, when you become a, you know, a dedicated, you know, strength trainer or you just become, when you become dedicated to your routine and doing things the right way and taking care of your arm and getting in your strength conditioning workouts. Like you're like, you feel a little bit of that tug of guilt when you don't put in your day's work, but it's completely different when your job's on the line. The only thing that matters is how you play. Right. And obviously we both started to run into all the guys who put no preparation in, who still can just roll out there after drinking nine beers on the bus the previous night or 16 beers, (laughs) depending on the guy and, uh, and just, and, and play well. Right. I mean, you just see the, the vast, variance in in routines you know some guys have no routine and beers their routine and being out late's their routine other guys are impeccable but at the end of the day the only thing that matters is how you play yeah that's the funny thing i,
1: I mean I, I definitely you know that kind of stuff with those guys they definitely caught up to some of them at least at some points in the season you know they seem to always be plagued with some sort of injury or something nagging them that they probably could have prevented by you know taking care of themselves a little bit better but you know they were still performing at a very high level and uh they were getting the job done and they still had a jersey on their back so it really wasn't anything to say to them
0: yeah and you know the kenny powers saying you know which i think kind of will live in infamy but you know i'm not trying to be the best at exercising it's true obviously having a good routine and putting healthy things in your body and and sticking to your regimen and you know keeping your legs beneath you all those things help you to not break down like in the season but at the end of the day it does not matter if you go out there and the guy who's a slob who doesn't, who does nothing but drink beer pitches better than you. I mean, sorry. You don't, you don't get any points for having the best bench press or the best squat or being the most diligent or running the most miles between starts. You get points for being better. And that's, I think it's hard to live with for some people as well. I mean, it's hard to come to terms with. He's like, you start to get in this situation where you feel like, oh, I deserve success and he doesn't. But, not you know baseball in life they don't owe you anything
1: yeah i would say i really learned i really saw that and learned that for myself as far as you know the only thing that mattered was the day that i was out there performing uh was when i was in the winter leagues um i got to play with a lot of uh you know latin players where you know for them it's just enjoying the game and being passionate and doing what they love you know was what they what they live for and i was able to kind of see where you know yeah, you know they were they you know they had their workouts and you know everything they did. But honestly, you know some guys they just threw the ball a mile, and they would just go out there and throw it as hard as they could, and that was it, and that's all that mattered. And if they did well, that was great. And if not, hey, baseball, baseball was fun, and tomorrow's another day.
0: Yeah, so that's a good segue into this. So, so tell me a little bit about your, I mean, was it culture shock? So obviously your first season in your first season in winter ball was with. Was in the Venezuelan league, right? With was it Caracas, or did you go to uh, the Dominican with Escojito first? Dominican,
1: Dominican was first with Escojito. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was definitely an eye opener. I, I mean, I had heard stories, you know, guys had told me, you know, before going because it's in the Atlantic League. Many of the guys we played with, you know, they had been in the in the winter leagues, and it was a a normal occurrence for them to be in the winter leagues in the winter time. So, you know, I had stories from them, you know. So, I didn't know. Like I had never really I never left the country prior to that. I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, all I knew is that Dominican Republic was a poor area, you know, whatever. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I was excited at the same time. You know, I ended up getting there there and uh yeah, I mean, it, it was nice because what I found in the Winter Leagues is that, you know, obviously we're not I wasn't the only American guy there. There was typically, you know, a handful up to ten American players on each team. Um, you know, that we all were able to bond together with and kind of uh take care of each other and guys had been there prior, you know, help each other out. And you know, also there are, you know, a lot of Latin players, you know, they all play in the States and they all know what it's like to come to America the first time and have that reverse feeling was you know, they were able to kind of help us out as well. So it, it was definitely a cool experience to kind of be in in the reverse and kind of now understand how, what it feels like maybe as a, you know, a Venezuelan Dominican or, you know, a minority player to come to the United States and not know the language and, you know, be the first time in America.
0: Yeah. And then that's a great point. Obviously, you know, when you and I went to our, you know, little nerfy, you know, white collar colleges, you know, we weren't exposed to any Latin players. I didn't have any Latin players on my, my, you know, my college team. And obviously in the frontier league too, it's a lower level of play. So there weren't many Latin players in that league either. So, really, the first time I was exposed to having like really good, you know, Latin Latin based players was the Atlantic League, and these were all guys who were who were drafted. You know, my my teammate um, Joel Guzman was drafted when he was, or not drafted, but signed at the I think at a Venezuela. I could be wrong, but he was signed when he was sixteen, and we were playing together when he was thirty, and he had fourteen years or fifteen years of pro baseball under under his belt. You know, and that's just it's just crazy to think about how much he's gone through you know, being an outsider and not knowing the language for a number of years, I'm sure, and just a- adapting to all of it is crazy. And then obviously for you to, you know, be on the flip side of it, I, you know, it's it was probably an amazing experience. So obviously in the Atlantic League, you know, salaries range from $800 a month all the way up to $3,000 was the cap in that league. You know, tell me a little bit about the ballparks. Tell me about the salary, you know, tell me about the fans. I mean, what was, what was the, the total experience like down there?
1: Yeah, so definitely uh, the big attraction to the Winter Leagues was the salary. Um, you know, like you said, in Atlantic League, it's really difficult to get by. I mean, you know, paying bills and guys with, with families and kids. I mean, most of the guys were, were losing money every month to, to continue to play the game that they loved with the, with the hope of being signed to get back to where they came from. Um, but, you know, for the Winter Leagues, it was another way to, to you know make some income to be able to prolong careers. And, you know, those salaries were anywhere, I mean, I would say, you know, the, the lowest salaries were in Puerto Rico where they range probably around, you know, typically it was probably anywhere from 5,000 and up a month, uh, you know, to where I play with guys in Venezuela who are making upwards of eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a month. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy, honestly, the amount of money that some of these teams have and, you know, the amount that they'll pay. I mean, and the funny thing is, is that those contracts are all guaranteed for one month. So, you know, if you sign a contract for say fifteen thousand dollars and you play one game, you're there in the country for one day, and they send you home, they still owe you fifteen thousand dollars. So I mean, whether you're there for one day or thirty, uh, you know, the salary's the same for the first month.
0: Yeah, and it looks like, and obviously, you know, I had a bunch of teammates who went off and played winter ball. And I remember keeping track of them and, you know, keeping track of you. And as I'm looking at your Dominican stats, you pitched seven innings, you know, in with the Dominican yeah. team, and then you pitched three with Caracas. So for your 10, ten <laughs> innings of work, you made what, like a couple grand an inning. It's not, it's not terrible.
1: Yeah, no, that, that is funny. I mean, when, I mean, obviously, you know, you want to do really well and, uh, you want to be successful, but sometimes, uh, in the wintertime when you, I mean, what I found is I was extremely fatigued by the time I got there. I, I mean, my arm after, after throwing 160 some innings, my first year in, in a summer set, which something I had never done before. And then going into winter ball, I, I was just. I was, my arm was not ready for that. And, uh, but, uh, when looking back on it financially, it was like, huh, well, you know, that was pretty nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I know a lot of guys coming home with, you know, 30, 40 K for two months work and that's, it's pretty cool. Plus you're playing baseball to earn that. I mean, so talk about some other things. Like I saw some of your, uh, your Instagram photos from, from Mexico and for anyone who wants to follow you, what's your, what's your Instagram handle by the way? I mean, unless you're private.
1: No, I'm not private. My Instagram handle is mjzski20.
0: Yeah, so you had some pretty cool, uh, you know, photos from your time. You were with uh, Jalisco this past winter, or was that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I started uh, in Venezuela. It was a crazy winter, actually. I, I started in uh, in Venezuela with the uh, I ended up uh, throwing, I think, three three times for them. I actually opened the, the season for them on opening day. I started. And then I think, uh, two appearances after that, then they let me go, uh, got home, uh, and real quick. What, what's, little, uh, opening time. day
0: look like in Venezuela? I mean, how many fans are there? I mean, just describe that scene. Cause I've heard it's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a pretty cool scene. I mean, there was definitely, I, I would say the, 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 difficult thing about this year in Venezuela was that the, you know, the political climate and economic climate that's going on there is, you know, it's a really bad situation right now for the people. there. Uh, really sad, honestly. And uh, so the money is a big money issue going on. So honestly, the the turnout for some of the games that usually would have been packed wasn't like it would have been just because they couldn't afford it. Um, You know, obviously, for for any if anyone has American dollars, it was not expensive. But, you know, the majority of people that live there, they do not. So um, some of the turnouts that were expected, you know, 30 to 30,000 people, um, you might have had, you know. 20,000, 25,000 instead. But opening day was probably right around 20,000. I mean, it's, you know, fans and, you know, that's one of their escapes in life down there, especially in the situation going on now, they love baseball as they do in all the Latin countries. And, uh, you know, it's what they wait for the whole year. It's their big leagues.
0: Yeah. I've heard that. Obviously, you know, I I studied philosophy in college and, you know, I remember my philosophy of sport uh, classes and they said that the very word sport comes from the Latin word disporto which means to carry away you know from from your troubles essentially like that's what sports are for is to carry people away from the grind of their daily lives and you know their tedious jobs and you know the the hardships that everyone goes through and that's what you know sports are that that wonderful diversion you know that that gives people hope it gives them some reason to get out of bed if they don't you know have a big one otherwise. And I guess you know obviously you probably saw that there. so all right, so after your time in Venezuela then you transition um so you got picked up by mexico in a mexican league team right
1: yeah i went to mexico uh i was in guadalajara playing for the charros of jalisco um really cool stadium honestly it was a it was a converted uh stadium that was used for the pan am games uh, um so it was a huge stadium i had never seen anything like it all turf it was a, honestly a really cool architecture i it was it was really cool um on and the weather there and uh actually in guadalajara you're elevated so the ball is flying out of the stadium pretty good too so uh, it's actually one of the stadiums used in this year's world baseball classic i believe uh it was in the division with italy mexico and i'm not sure the other two teams that were there but uh it was one of the stadiums used in the classic this year
0: i heard the mexican ballparks have like crazy high-tech electronics and like huge scoreboards but they're like really high-tech compared to even some of the major league ballparks is that right
1: um so they, it was honestly eye opening compared to the other uh winter leagues I played in Mexico was different. i mean the one thing that really that was different was they would have mascots on the field during the game i mean the, I, I remember we had a we had a monkey and a bird i believe that was that would be on the foul line like during during the pitch and I was just i was appalled I was, I, this was new like there was music going on during the pitch it, it was a it was a crazy scene it was definitely entertaining to be on the bench you know one thing that a starting pitcher spends a lot of time on so
0: this is very true this is very true and so then obviously in 2016 so i remember this was weird you and i almost became teammates but after your 2015 campaign with somerset you got a facebook message from uh the manager or general manager of the bologna team in italy right
1: yeah it was the general manager sent me a facebook message that's right
0: and so tell me about that i mean Obviously, we you and I talked about that a, a bunch and and the way that story was was weirdly intertwined. So I had an All-Star season in 2015 and I don't check Facebook, all right? So I I pretty much hate social media, Facebook especially. Like I just don't I just don't post anything on it and I'm not super interested in it. So basically I I just never check messages and most of my settings were on private and I got I had an inbox message from the same general manager from that team. He said, "Hey, would you want to come play in Italy?" And a month later I found it and I was like, "Oh crap." I kind of might and by that point it was too late and it looked like they'd signed you and a couple other guys and the spot was probably filled but I mean tell me about you know transitioning to going to Italy and kind of recap what it is that you and I discuss as far as your career ramifications playing in Italy.
1: So it it was a it was something that was started a communication started when I was actually playing in Puerto Rico. I was in Puerto Rico after my second season of Somerset and I was I would say it was probably in December, early January, when I started, you know, having messages from the GM, and, uh, you know, it it was intriguing. I I didn't really know what to do. I, uh, I didn't know anything about the league. Yeah, I I had no idea the competition level. All I knew was that I was going to be paid a little bit more than I was going to make in the Atlantic League, and I had reached. I actually was a teammate, a guy in Puerto Rico that um, that I played there a couple years prior. He gave me what the, you know, his his idea of what it was i mean he tried to give me the rundown it just it really what it was difficult to speak of though once i got there i kind of understood more um you know i i ended up making the decision based off of a, a little bit of frustration honestly and uh you know something new because i had, had put up some good numbers uh in the atlantic league and uh you know i was still, still sitting there in the atlantic league going to go back for my third year and uh i just thought that i needed to try something new i was just you know, you know I was thought maybe that my career was going to be, you know, that it would be it. I mean, I had those thoughts a lot based off of, uh, you know, continuing to be an independent ball. It's not an easy mentally um, to be continued on that path. I mean, nobody, you know, has aspirations of being just an independent ball player, which you know I ended up being. But uh, so I ended up going to Italy and uh, it was a really cool experience. Um, I had never been to Europe, so that was, was one of the, the desirables to go there. Uh, but the baseball is definitely a lot different. The competition level was below Atlantic League for sure. Well, Yeah, I'm looking the... I'm
0: looking at your stats here. So <laughs> you went from being a career, you know, 3.3 3 ERA pitcher to pitching in 64 innings a 0. 0.42 ERA. So quite <laughs> a step down it the seems best like.
1: Video game numbers. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you hit fourth for the team too? Did you hit cleanup?
1: <laughs> no, it still, still didn't hit. But,
0: yeah, you you have a brutal uh, swing by the way. Pitchers BP. Okay. I'm not real good either, but I think that's one of the only things I have on you, probably.
1: Maybe I don't know. The only thing that I probably have is that I can hit from both sides, but you know, not well
0: from either side. Yeah, you can <laughs> you can slap a ball into the shortstop glove from both sides. Congratulations! Exactly,
1: I can hit a fung I can have fungo from both sides of the plate.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Well, um, how did you adjust to? I mean, not speaking the language and all that. I mean, that obviously you dealt with that in the Dominican, but there were more American teammates. You only probably had a couple of American teammates in Italy, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I believe I had uh, three uh, American teammates. Um, a lot, most of the guys could speak English just from uh, from having uh, past players um, that were English speaking. Uh, but honestly, the majority of the language that was spoken was Spanish uh, on my team there, just because there was, was a, a strong number of Venezuelan players in the league and on my team. Um, so, and then the Italian. And Spanish were you know somewhat close language, so it was easy for the Italian players to you know, speak Spanish and understand Spanish, and then you know it was easy for the Venezuelans obviously to speak their own language.
0: And then so
1: I honestly found myself speaking Spanish more than I did Italian.
0: <laughs> Dude, I just remember seeing your your bio photo when I like looped you up on that on their website, trying to find you on the roster and like check up on your stats, and just seeing your ridiculous beard your huge black beard which i've always known you as like this you know kind of suburban kid like you're not you're not a motorcycle gang leader but you have the biggest, <laughs> the biggest beard <laughs> yeah you're a huge pansy um wearing all your lululemon everywhere which i shouldn't talk I, I own more than you do probably but um it's the whole beard thing in baseball is funny because you know from the outside looking in you're like oh man i, I don't want to mess with that guy Looks scary, but you know, like I don't know, just just knowing you, like you have the thickest beard like of all time, like and your beard goes all up like to your eyeballs, almost more like a yeah some sort of I don't know gorilla creature. But I just remember looking at that photo and just laughing. I mean, did anyone else? Because the baseball beard is like a a recent like you know like Brian Wilson started that off like eight eight or ten years ago or maybe that timeline's wrong, but it's kind of a recent phenomenon. Right, like every reliever seems to grow a beard and now you look old and grizzled and like a salty vet, and these guys are like 20 to they said these gross you know red sox beards, yeah, but you know you pitched what uh, you pitched with the beard what your last four years you uh, kind actually of became your story. thing
1: i st- I started growing the beard in 15, 2015 with Somerset we had a a group of starting pitchers uh, on the starting staff that uh we had made this crazy idea that hey we're all going to grow beards through uh one guy already had a beard and then uh one of the other guys was like, Hey, let's grow beards. And then and, you know, out of the five starters, um, two of them couldn't really grow much. So, uh, you know, they did what they could and, you know, they, they, they kind of fell off the wagon, but, uh, three of us ended up continue keeping the beards for the, pretty much the entire season. And, uh, I definitely kept mine. And, you know, as I was growing it, uh, I got a lot of comments from them and other guys like, Whoa, dude, your beard is on another level. <laughs> and, uh, That's when I just like, all right, well, you know, might as well keep it. It's, you know, it's going well. I was throwing wells. So uh, it became me.
0: Yeah, I I tried to follow suit. I like, I guess I could, I finally hit like full man puberty when I was maybe (laughs) 29 and I gave it a go and I let my beard grow for like eight weeks and I just looked like a fat person. It just like made my (laughs) jaw, my jaw expanded. It didn't look like I had a beard because A, mine gets like red in the sun and i just i just looked like a chubby kid so i was like screw this i'm not intimidating anyone they just think i'd probably get out of breath if they bun a ball to the left side but <laughs> but yeah i mean i just your picture just cracked me up because i don't know i just pictured you like showing up to italy in like some like long cloak or something i don't know i'm just <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous but like one of the big things with you that i i remember being impressed with as you pitch, which a lot of young pitchers don't understand the importance was just your presence. So when we played against each other in the Atlantic league, this couple of years, even though we were friends, like I always wanted to win against you. But when you'd like punch out the last hit of the inning, you would just pace off the mound, like this very, like screw you fast walk. Like I, I knew I was going to do that kind of thing. And one of the things I, I think your ability always played up because you had such a good mound presence. I mean, is that something that you ever had to work on that someone talked to you about? I mean, obviously that's a huge thing in baseball, but, but kind of talk a little bit about how you developed your presence, if, if anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was something that I, uh, that I found that if I didn't have sort of an aggressive mindset or, a you know, actually, I had actually had some mantras throughout my career that I would put under my hat. And one of them was, was FU. And it was just pretty much used the letter F and the letter U and that was it. And that you know, that would remind me that, you know, that, a you, I, I'm the best player on the ma- on the field right now, and I'm the one with the ball, and you're gonna have to get through me to get, you know, on base or whatever. And that, you know, it was that one on one competition that kind of fueled that. But I found that if I ever let up on the gas and didn't have, have that mindset, that was seemed to be the times where I got hurt. You know, times I got hit, times I did not succeed. And, uh, you know, I I kind of was able to find that, you know, when I had a consistent attitude, a consistent aggressiveness about me on the mound and a, you know, a mindset like that, that I was able to succeed. And once I when, when the times that I didn't have that was the times that I failed. So that was something that I had to find It was you know, I obviously wasn't born with that, but it was something I developed over the years.
0: Those are great points. And I think a lot of people kind of, they make a mistake trying to conflate being a contact pitcher with being a passive pitcher. Cause they're not like, they're not mutually exclusive. I think the word that we've used over and over with you is aggressive. Like, yeah, you stayed out of the middle of the plate, and you're more of a contact pitcher, but you were aggressive to your spot, right? I mean, talk a little bit about what that means, because I don't think a lot of people get it.
1: It was uh, aggressive to the spot. You know, you have to know what you're going to do with the hitter, and then you know, realizing that you're going to still attack. I mean, if you're if you're not aggressive, you're going to be pitching around guys, and you have more chance of making a mistake because you're going to be behind in the count, or you're going to be nibbling, and you're not going to get the strike calls, which means you have to throw more strikes in hitters counts, um, you know, which you're going to get hurt. So, you know, aggressive within the strike zone means that, you know, you need to be able to command the inside part, the outside part, you know, up and down and be able to change speeds. And, you know, and if you're able to throw all that within the zone, you're able to command the zone. You can be aggressive. in
0: So let's talk about, as we kind of wrap up here, like what's, what's next for you? So you've had a little bit of shoulder trouble this year. And you're not currently with the team. It's, uh, you know, both of us this is the first time that it's May 1st and, you know, we're sitting here. Tell me what's, what's going on with you and what you think the next chapter might hold, you know, hopefully it's still baseball, but what are you thinking right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's been difficult, uh, not being with the team right now. I and mean, I mean, there's, I know one day specifically, I think it was last, last weekend, maybe last Sunday. Uh, you know, it was a beautiful day. I, I didn't have anything to do. And, uh, it, it was really depressing because normally I would have been, you know, already at the field, probably had a one o'clock game somewhere, you know, been on the field or in the dugout, having hanging out with the guys and, you know, or on the mound performing. And, uh, you know, I wasn't. And that's when it really set with me that, like, wow, like, I, you know, this is, this is difficult not playing right now. You know, you, you don't realize it until you don't have it. I mean, you take it for granted. I guess at some point when, you know, you are playing, which is, you know, you try not to do, but it becomes just part of you where, you know, every year you you have a uniform on your back and it just becomes routine. Um, and then when it's not there or you're not starting the season with the team, it's, it's difficult. And, uh, you know, what, what's next? Um, I'm trying to figure that out. Honestly, uh, I'm trying to utilize, you know, my skills and the things that I've developed over you know, the course of my career, uh, the intangibles and the skills that I've, I've developed and my experiences and trying to be the best person that I can and find a career that I can, you know, succeed the best at.
0: So what was yeah, your degree? I don't in? know
1: if that's in baseball. I don't know if that's in baseball. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm searching kind of those careers as well. Uh, I don't know if it's on the coaching side, the operations side, if it's not in baseball at all. So it's, it's been a, it's been a process so far.
0: And what was your degree in?
1: Uh, I graduated with a degree in political science,
0: and I kind of remarked about marked about this in a, an earlier podcast as well. But it was weird being—I mean, did you realize you were probably one of the few guys in your clubhouse, especially in the Atlantic League, who had a had his degree?
1: Yeah, that, that's something that I've been kind of reflecting on right now um, as I'm doing this kind of searching for myself, and uh, to realize that you know. There is somewhat of a separation between you know me and the other former you know or former baseball players is that I do have a degree, which is you know is a separating factor.
0: Yeah, I mean I didn't realize that until you know me and my teammate Zach Clark, who we went to college together. We were both signed. We you know neither of us were drafted. He signed as a free agent with the Orioles. But most of the guys who make it to a high level in the Atlantic League obviously was had a lot of high level guys. You know, tons of guys with big league time who were drafted at a high school and signed. You know, first round draft picks, guys signed out of the, you know, Venezuela and Dominican and other foreign leagues, you know, as, as teenagers, those guys were all too good to finish their degree, right? Most of those guys were too good to ever finish college. And you and I and, and Zach were all not good enough when we were 21, 22, where we finished our degree. It's almost like a crutch. But most of the guys that make it are too good too early to ever finish college. And it's weird. It's weird to think about it that way. It's not that they're dumb because they're not. I mean, it's the same, like, you know, as far as I experienced the same bell curve intelligence in a baseball clubhouse as anywhere else. But it was just weird thinking about, like, most of these guys didn't finish their degree and they either have to go back and finish it or go back and start it in the first place.
1: Yeah, and I guess what you find is mo- it doesn't seem like, you know, mo- a lot of the guys who play with in the Atlantic League were probably, you know, around their 10th year of playing. And uh, at that point, they already have, had, you know, family, kids and going back to college probably wasn't in most of their plans even if it was four years or just one or you know maybe a more than one a little bit uh, a couple of credits over one but uh you know it seemed like that most of the, a lot of those guys that were that far into their careers and that much experience were probably going to go back into baseball in some sense whether it was coaching or scouting
0: yeah and i think you know scouting is probably a good fit obviously that's my my buddy zach clark is doing now and you know, I I think it, it makes a lot of sense because obviously you want guys who know the game and who understand what players go through. But yeah, I mean, you know, the transition out for me has been, has been difficult. And, um, you know, this podcast for me has been sort of a coping mechanism in a lot of ways and, you know, helping to, I think all of us just grieve in our own, in our own way. And, you know, with all the obstacles each of us face and the long journey and putting our hopes and dreams and kind of making ourselves vulnerable because you make yourself vulnerable going out there in front of Twenty-five thousand fans in venezuela right and that's a it's putting yourself out there because you succeed as much as you fail or you fail as much as you succeed and it's not easy when everyone's cheering the opposite way they're cheering the the basis clearing double that you just gave up right when you're playing on the road that's hard so you know it's a it's a tough it's a tough situation to be in and obviously it happens for every player and you know most players aren't going to retire to a 100 million dollar nest egg after you know their free agent contract runs out and they get a little bit too old to keep playing the majors and that's not the reality for most of us, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing being end of your twenties or early thirties and having to start, start over, start from scratch. But the nice thing is you've got Lululemon to fall back on Matt.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know if that is the career calling, but, uh, uh for the time <laughs> being it's, it's where I ended up in between, uh, coming back from Dominican and what I was supposed to start, uh, for Somerset. But, uh, now that that's not happening, uh,
0: you don't want to sell yoga some, pants for the rest of your life? I mean, a lot of cute girls uh, come through those uh, those stores, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, it's been some good conversations, but uh, let's just say that uh, selling yoga pants isn't my career aspirations. Okay,
0: that's fair enough. <laughs> well, hey man, this was a this is I think one of our best talks. I mean, this is a great conversation, and actually, I appreciate you having appreciate having on having you on the show, man. Hour yeah, and twelve man, in, and I got marbles in my mouth, man. No, it's been a lot of fun, it.
1: honestly. I have, you know, as he's just right out and you know, kind of just figuring out what's going on with me and my baseball career. It's been nice to be able to talk and reflect about it. On.
0: Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, all that we have, right, are our memories. And I don't think anyone's really going to worry about, you know, what someone's ERA was and their win loss record. But it's, you know, the relationships we form and performing under pressure and just those rushes that we got, you know, pitching for a sold out crowd and getting to compete, you know, deeper into our life Cause you know, that's what I tell a lot of kids who, you know, they want to keep playing or maybe they're not sure. And I say, hey, you got the rest of your life to to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. And those are great professions. But you also have the rest of your life and your baseball career is finite. Right. That's for, that's for sure. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming on the show. But, hey, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll uh, we'll catch up again soon. and Hopefully you get back on the field and I see you out there this summer.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Dan. It's been awesome.
0: All right. Take care. Hey, thanks for being with us. So another great episode of Dear Baseball Gods and some great baseball talk here with Matt Zielinski. I want to thank him for coming on the show and make sure you check us out on iTunes. Feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. And just remember, if you uh, if you get something out of this and you feel like you know our stories are connecting with you, feel free to share it with somebody and and recommend our show because you know at the end of the day we're just a bunch of ball players, you know, trying to kind of pass on what we learned. So we'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.